Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Hebrews 11, 1 through 3. That's our sermon passage this morning. And uh, parents, if you want to dismiss children for Children's Church, now is the time to do that. I want to extend thanks to everybody who came out yesterday for the uh, church work day. We do this once a year, come together and beautify, clean up our property. So I understand many were here yesterday. So thanks to all of you who uh, were here. Um, It's good to see lots of new faces here this morning. Uh, Good to see a lot of college students here. I want to let you know if this is your first time, this is actually just our third service in this sanctuary. Uh, and we're very grateful, very excited about our time here. We're still, as you can probably tell, just working out some of the kinks and some of the bugs, so thanks for your patience as we work through these things. Also want to make it clear, uh, following up with Josh's announcement about the life groups, that those life groups are open to to all of you, even if you are a first-time newcomer here today uh, or if you're a college student, we would be more than happy to have you participate Uh, in those groups. So our passage uh, this morning from Hebrews chapter 11, uh, we're beginning a new sermon series here today, a four-part sermon series. And some of you, uh, sports fans in particular, might be aware of uh, probably the most interesting sports story this past summer, the story of LeBron James' decision to head back to Cleveland to play for the Cavaliers after several years playing in Miami where he won a couple of championships and uh, earned a reputation as one of, if not the best, living basketball player in the world. But LeBron James is going home. And he made this announcement in a rather humble way, much better way than his previous announcement when he went from Cleveland to Miami. Uh, LeBron wrote a letter explaining his rationale for going back to Cleveland, and the letter began by saying this. The very first sentence that he wrote, he says, Before I was ever a basketball player, he said, I was a kid from Northeast Ohio. Of course, that's where Cleveland is. That's where he's going back. That's where his home is. Before he was ever a basketball player, he was a kid from Northeast Ohio. What LeBron James was affirming in that statement is that he has not forgotten where he's from. Where are you from? Where are you from? I'll tell you where I'm from. I'm from Muncie. I was born in Muncie. Uh, I live in Muncie now. I pastor here in Yorktown. So generally I say I'm from Muncie or Yorktown. I actually grew up in Carmel, so... Spent a lot of years there. Sometimes I'll say, I'm from Carmel. If I'm in another country, I might say, I'm from the United States. If I were on another planet, I guess I'd say, I'm from planet Earth. (laughs) Where are you from? It's really an important thing to consider. Where we're from has a lot to do with who we are, doesn't it? And where we come from has strong influence on the kind of people we are. Think of the the, the number of things that you do, preferences that you have that are based on where you're from, the food that you like, the music 
that you prefer, the kind of government that you live under, your standard of living, the language you speak, the religion you profess, or the non-religion that you profess, those things are largely bound up in where a person is from. Well, today, <clears throat> this is the question we're asking. Where are we from? Not just where are you from, but where are we from as a people? Where did the universe come from? Hugely important question for us to answer. Because if we conclude that the answer to that question is that there is no creator and we just randomly evolved over the period of millions of years, the really only satisfactory answer to this question of where we are from is to say we've come from no one, we're here for no purpose, and we're going nowhere. Where we're from has a lot to do with how we answer those questions. Who created us? What's our purpose for existence? Where are we headed? The Bible tells us very clearly here in Hebrews chapter 11, in verse 3, that the universe was created by the Word of God. What the Bible is telling us here is that it all began when God spoke everything into existence. That's where we're from. And this is what we're going to talk about here this morning. It's the first part of a four-part sermon series. What we're talking about is what Christianity is. We figured this would be a good time to kind of go back to the basics as we start a new phase of life in our church, that we would just review what is Christianity about? What does it mean? We're going to take four Sundays to do that. Today we're talking about creation, as I hope has been evident in our service so far. <clears throat> next week we'll talk about the fall. Today we're talking about where we came from. Tomorrow, next week, we'll talk about what went wrong. Then we'll talk about redemption. What did God do to fix the problem that we find in this world? September 7th, as we've been saying, that's our... Uh, dedication service, the weekend in which we celebrate officially this new sanctuary. So on September 7th, we're going to have a building dedication service. We'll depart from this series for a moment and then pick up with glory. Where are we going? Actually, redemption and glory are both after that dedication service. But today we're thinking about this question of where did we come from? <clears throat> now, this is very interesting, I think, when we look at Hebrews chapter 11. If you're familiar with this book, you might know that Hebrews 11 is what is sometimes called the Hall of Faith. You all know what a Hall of Fame is. That's where a number of individuals are honored. Their names are listed with their various accomplishments, whether it be a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or a Sports Hall of Fame. Hebrews 11 is kind of a godliness Hall of Fame. It's a list of a number of biblical characters, Noah, Abraham, and many others, and it's concentrating specifically on the faith that these individuals displayed in their lives. <clears throat> so it's a Hall of Fame kind of chapter, but faith is the central issue. So that's why the chapter begins in verse 1, saying faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. But then immediately the writer goes very interestingly, before the writer starts to detail these different individuals, the writer goes to the doctrine of creation in verse 3. 
By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So here's what we're going to think about today. What is it that creation, the doctrine of creation in the Bible, what does this tell us about where we came from and why we're here? So we're going to think about this in three ways. First of all, we're going to think about what creation tells us about God. What do we learn about God by virtue of the fact that He is the creator of all things? First thing is this. We learn that He exists. And you might say, duh, isn't that kind of obvious? Um, it might not be so obvious to everybody. Uh, this passage in particular doesn't necessarily point this out, but as we go to other passages in the Scripture, we find this repeatedly mentioned, that the created order, everything that has been made, those things that we've been singing about, those things that Pastor Brian talked about, the glory that we see in creation, the beauty and majesty that we see in creation testifies to every human being that God is real, that He does exist, that He is there. A lot of people ask this question. One of the biggest questions that's ever been asked, how do we know that God exists? How can we know that He's really there? What the Bible would say is you can know because of the testimony of creation, the testimony of the universe. In other words, what the Bible is saying is that creation proves that God exists. Now, I know what you, some of you might be thinking, well, <clears throat> that might prove it to you, but it doesn't prove it to me. I, I need scientific proof that God exists. I want to see it demonstrated in a laboratory. I want to see a formula on a chalkboard. I want to see a proposition, a logical argument that makes it indisputable that God exists. Maybe that's what you're looking for. But let me just say this to you in response to that. Doesn't it stand to reason, friend, that if God does exist, that the criteria by which we know He would exist would depend on what He establishes, not on what you establish? Wouldn't it stand to reason that what God says is sufficient evidence for His existence trumps your demand for whatever you require for sufficient evidence for God's existence. And what the Bible says very clearly in Romans chapter 1 and in other places, that his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. Ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, and the things that God has created. So they, that is people, men, women, and children, are without excuse. So the excuse that the existence of God hasn't been proved to me is not going to be persuasive to God when you meet Him one day. Romans 1 says the created order is sufficient, that His existence is clearly evident to everyone, everywhere, every day. No one has an excuse to not worship the Creator God who exists. That's one of the things we learn from creation. That's what the Bible says. 
God exists and we know it because of what has been made. But we also learn from creation that God is eternal. God has always existed. If you go back to verse 3, look what the writer says. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, and then it says, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So what does he mean here? He's saying that those things that are seen, the created order, everything that we perceive with our vision, was not made, was not created out of things that are visible, things that we can see, out of created pre-existing material. What the writer is saying here is that God made the universe out of nothing. He used nothing. He had nothing alongside him. He had no pre-existing materials to pick up and use to create the universe. There was God, and there was nothing else, and this God spoke by the power of His Word, and into being sprang the stars and the planets and the clouds and everything that we see. That's what the Bible is saying. That's how God created. Now, you might say, that sounds unbelievable. How can that possibly happen? (laughs) Well, remember, this is the faith chapter, right? It's by faith that we're going to receive these things and believe these things. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. But you might find that hard to believe, but I would suggest that if you're one who does not believe in God, that there are questions for you to answer that are at least as difficult, if not more difficult, to answer than how it is that God could have spoken everything into being from nothing. Because it's my understanding that scientists today are generally in agreement that the universe had a beginning. There was a point in our history when the universe did not exist, when there was nothing, and then it came into existence. That's, that's what scientists agree, Christian or not, on this, uh, in this particular day. So, the question that you, who might be suspicious of the teaching of the Bible, the question for you to answer is, how is it that something could come from nothing? And there's a very well-known philosophical phrase that says this, from nothing, nothing comes. (laughs) Scientists say, yeah, there was a time when there was nothing. So how does something come from nothing? Answer me that question. From nothing, nothing comes. What the Bible is saying is that from someone, everything came. That seems a more reasonable account of the evidence that there was someone there, and from Him, this eternal, everlasting God, all things have sprung into existence. So I'm making the point here that God is eternal, and I hope you're seeing the implication here. If God existed before anything sprung into being, it stands to reason that God has existed forever and ever and ever, and the Bible says this as well here in Psalm chapter 90. Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That's why we sang earlier, everlasting God. He doesn't grow tired. He never grows weary. He never dies. He had no beginning. He's eternal, everlasting God. Now, what does that mean for you and for me? Well, 
Let's think this through. If before there was a universe, there was God, God was eternal, existing, forevermore, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, just the three of them loving and adoring and glorifying one another for all eternity, and then God speaks into existence the universe, what that would suggest is that the universe is here for God, not God being here for the universe. What that suggests is that you and me, who are part of this universe that God spoke into existence, are here for Him, and that He is not here primarily for us. And you ever hear people say about somebody who's very selfish, we say, that person thinks the universe revolves around him. That's a selfish person. Do you know there's only one person for whom that is a true statement, and that's God. He is the center of the universe. Everything revolves around him because he's the eternal God, was perfectly happy in himself for a long, long, long time before the universe ever came along. You exist, friends, for the glory of God, to know Him, to serve Him, to worship Him, to bring glory to His name. That's what creation reveals to us about God, that He's there and that He's eternal. Well, what else do we learn about creation? What, do, what does creation tell us about the world? the universe, the earth. What does creation tell us about this? Now, I'm going to make a point here that I like to make. I never get tired of making this point. So for some of you, you've heard me say this a million times. But one of the reasons I say it is because whenever I say it, particularly when I'm talking to Christians, I get these kind of raised eyebrows a lot. It seems like this point that I'm about to make is one that is often met with suspicion. To a lot of Christians, this just doesn't sound right, what I'm about to tell you about the world. And I'm going to set this up by quoting Martin Luther. Actually, there's some question about whether he really said this. I understand that. I don't think it's any of, in any of his printed works. Uh, <clears throat> but the statement itself is a true one. And this is what Luther is purported to have said. Even if I knew that tomorrow the world would go to pieces, I would still plant my apple tree. Now, doesn't that just kind of push you back a little bit? What? Why? Why would you plant an apple tree if you knew the world was going to end? I mean, why wouldn't you go and start telling everybody about the gospel if you knew the world was going to end? I mean, that would be a legitimate thing to do for sure. But here's Luther saying, here's what I'd do. I'd plant a tree. What does he mean by that? Why would he say that? I think the reason that Luther is saying this is because he acknowledges that apple trees are good. <laughs> and apple trees are going to have a long time to grow for all eternity in the new earth after Jesus comes again. That life on this earth and doing earthly things like planting an apple tree is actually a purely and legitimately spiritual activity that pleases and glorifies God. Because we live in a world 
that has been pronounced by God to be good. The universe is good. Creation is good. And when we think through the implications of that, I think this puts some Christians on suspicion. But I'm going to share another quote here from um, a very famous atheist who has noticed a problem in the lifestyles of many Christians, and he finds this very objectionable, and I have to say I'm in full agreement with him. This is Christopher Hitchens, died a few years ago, one of the leading atheists, and he says this. He says, Christian religion wants this world to come to an end. You can tell the yearning for things to be over whenever you read any of its real texts or listen to any of its real authentic spokesmen. The contempt for the things of this world shows through all of them. And he goes on later to say that he finds this contemptible. Does this describe you, friends, as a Christian? One who's just kind of just wishing it would all be over? Has no interest, no regard for the things of this world, for what it is to live on this earth, for earthly activities? There's an error, friends, in the church of Jesus Christ. It's very prevalent. I see it over and over again. A lot of people write about it, but it still springs up, and it's this error that suggests that only spiritual matters are important, and all earthly matters, all things related to physical existence, are somehow unimportant and secondary. That what a waste of time it is for a Christian to pursue being the best basketball player that he or she could possibly be, or for a Christian to become an astrophysicist and to enter into the sciences, or for a Christian to be the best singer that he or she can be, or the best musician. Those things, they're not advancing the kingdom. Those are earthly things. Those are physical things. Those are things that are going to burn, and they're all going to fall away. So Christian, don't do those things. Just read your Bible and go to church, because that's all that's valuable, and that's all that pleases God. This is a very common assumption among Christians. There's a name for it. It's called Gnosticism. It's a very early heresy in the first century. Gnosticism simply is the elevation of the spiritual at the expense of the physical or material. It's a heresy, friends. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says when it talks about creation, the doctrine of creation tells us that the world is good, the universe is good, the created order is good. You know that from Genesis chapter 1, right? That's where we see the description of how God created the world one day after another. And after everything that He creates, He stops and He says, it is good. You know, you notice here in Hebrews 3, the universe was created by the Word of God. He spoke it. But then in Genesis 1, we learn that He goes on to speak an assessment of what He's made. And he says, it's good. God loves his creation. He loves matter. He loves physical existence. He loves our bodies. He loves trees. He loves lakes. He loves the physical nature of this place. This is the way he made it. There's a passage in 1 Timothy 4 where Paul is talking or writing, and he's talking about people who who forbid people to marry 
Apparently, there were some Christians who were like, no, 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 you know, marriage, that's so earthly. It's not spiritual enough. And these people were forbidding the eating of certain foods. No, 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 that's too earthly. We've got to do spiritual things. And look what Paul says. Everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. I'm a little nervous about sharing this story, but I'm going to anyway. Um, The other night, we were at my house. It was my mom and my wife and me, and um, we were listening to some music, and we were drinking some wine. Can we we do that? (laughs) And a thunderstorm was going on outside. It was Thursday night. And my mom said, wine, Mozart, and lightning. What else could you want? I thought, what a wonderful statement. What a wonderful affirmation of the glory of life in God's physical existence, enjoying His good gifts. Now, I know, again, I think, trying to get in some of your heads, I think I know what maybe some of you are saying, but Bob, the Bible says the world is evil. How are we supposed to enjoy the world, when the Bible speaks of it, as ruled by Satan and full of wickedness. Well, we have to make a careful distinction. We have to define what we mean by world. What do we mean by world? What do I mean by world when I say the, that God pronounces the world good? Uh, here's a definition in 1 John chapter 2. Look what John says. <clears throat> do not love the world or the things in the world, okay, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, thunderstorms, wine, and music, is not from the Father. Is that what he says? No, everything in the world, that is, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, that's what's not from the Father. As Pastor Brian said in our confession and assurance, the good things that we have are things to be enjoyed, but the problem is that our hearts tend to want to enjoy them too much. We make good things into God things, and that leads to idolatry. That's what John's talking about, this lust, this pride that comes from our hearts. See, the wickedness and evil, the real problem comes from inside, not from outside, because what God has created on the outside is good. Isn't that refreshing to know that as a Christian, I don't have to feel like I have to flee from the world, that I, that I don't have to feel guilty because I find something pleasurable, that there's something truly spiritual about enjoying a good meal, listening to a great musician? That's just a wonderful way to live. I just think sometimes Christians live really boring, unappealing lives because they're afraid of the world. But God says the world is good. Students, we have a lot of students here. Just by way of application, I want to encourage you in this way. Maybe you're thinking, you're here at Ball State or Taylor or Anderson or wherever, and you're thinking, how is it that I can be a good Christian in the university? And you're probably thinking along the lines of something like this, I need to be prepared to share the gospel with my professors and my students. Yeah, that's true, you should. And I need to be prepared to avoid temptation that might come to me while I'm in college. 
That's true too. You need to be careful about that. You need to avoid those temptations and resist them. But here's one way you can be a good Christian in college. Study as hard as you can. Be a good student. Listen to your professors and learn from them. And be prepared to take whatever God does, whatever God gives you in college, whatever your major happens to be, be prepared then to go into the world as an accountant or a plumber or whatever it is and do it for the glory of God. That's how you can be a good Christian student. God's made this world good. Now, i got to clarify, the world has fallen, isn't it? That's what we're talking about next week. I'm not going to get into that in great detail now, but the world has been spoiled. The world has been corrupted by our sin. So, yes, it's true that as we enjoy the goodness of the created order, we do so within the boundaries of what God has set up in His Word. (laughs) Very important. We need the Spirit to fill us. We need God's Word to direct us. Uh, as we seek to enjoy life in this world. Um, And so, again, we'll talk about that more. Um, But even though the world has fallen, it doesn't mean that the created order has been vanquished of its goodness. It's still a good creation in which we live. Here's the ultimate affirmation of the goodness of creation, that God himself, the creator of all things, would come into this world He came into this physical existence. God took on flesh. He took on a human body in the person of Jesus Christ. And he lived on this earth. And he did physical things. He worked as a carpenter. He went to parties. He hung out with friends. He turned water into wine. And he shed blood. Real blood from a real body to forgive you of your sins, to forgive me. He was raised bodily from the grave so that not just our souls could be redeemed, but so that our bodies could also. The ultimate affirmation of the goodness of the created order, the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, one other thing, what does creation reveal about you? What does creation tell, the doctrine of creation, what does it say about you as a human being? Well, the first thing, is this. It tells you that you are the pinnacle of God's creation. The pinnacle. God created everything. We see that in the universe, according to verse 3. But he didn't create everything in exactly the same way. There was something different about the way God created man and woman. What the Bible says is that you and I have been made in God's image. Very, very important for us to understand. Genesis chapter 1, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You and I as human beings, friends, we have a very special dignity in God's created order by virtue of what Genesis 1 tells us. Psalm 8 says that we have been crowned with glory and honor. We're just a little lower than the angels. We're we're higher than the animals, lower than the angels. We're not the same as God. We're not going to become God like the Mormons say, but we are like God. Do you know, friends, have you ever thought of this? 
You are godlike. That's what creation says about you. You're godlike. There's something about you by virtue of being created by God that communicates and projects something of what God is like. That's a huge thing to understand for our own self-esteem, for our own self-understanding. And I would say this is something that, friends, we just cannot reconcile with Darwinism, with evolutionary Darwinism that says that over millions of years by natural selection, life forms have evolved, eventually resulting in humanity. The problem with that view is that it doesn't have any room to lend dignity to humanity. It doesn't allow men, women, and children to have any special significance. The only conclusion we can draw from that point of view is that we came from no one, we're here for no particular reason, and we're going nowhere. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that God created all the animals, all the universe, everything in it, and then on the sixth day... He did something special. He created men and women. Every single individual made in the image of God, whether you're male or female, whether you're black or white, whether you're gay or straight, whether you're in the womb or out of the womb, whether you are a Nobel Prize winning writer or whether you're languishing in a nursing home and can't even remember your name. You are made in the image of God. You are God's crowning achievement. And that might be something a lot of you just need to to hear. I know a lot of of you were probably just filled this morning with self-loathing. You hate yourself. You've seen all these things that you've done. You've suffered abuse all your life. You're cutting yourself because you hold yourself in contempt. Friends, go to the Scriptures and realize that what God has said is that you're a glorious creature. The glory of God comes forth from you by virtue of your status as a created being. That's what creation says about you. But one of the things that creation says about you, according to this text, is that you must have faith. You must have faith, friends. You might stand back from all this and say, how in the world am I going to, how can I believe all this? How can I accept all this? I'm an intelligent, rational, scientific person. I need proof. But look, look what the passage says. Again in verse 3, by faith we understand. Do you see that? By faith we understand. It doesn't say we understand so then we have faith, does it? It's by faith we understand. It doesn't say by consensus of the scientific community we understand that God created the world. It doesn't say by appealing to the works of Charles Darwin we understand that the universe was created by the world. No, by faith. By faith. Now, what, what is faith? You think, yeah, I'm not, a guy, I don't, I'm not a person who likes to live by faith. I like proof. Friends, you live by faith every single day, constantly. Every time you drive through an intersection You drive by faith. (laughs) You drive by faith that someone's not going to come through that red light and swipe you in the side. Every time you deposit a check in the bank, you deposit it by faith. You're trusting that that bank is going to care for your money. Every time you take a bite to eat, you eat by faith that this food's been prepared well. 
that it's not spoiled, that it's not poisoned. You live by faith. And you say, well, those are reasonable. I trust those people. That's right. And we trust God. We trust what He said. That's the nature of faith. We have a conviction of things not seen based on what God has said. And God's Word has declared that He has created all things by the Word of His mouth. And we trust Him. And we take it by faith. Well, one last thing, friends, that <clears throat> i got to tell you as I close, one thing that the creation just simply will not reveal to you. It will not reveal to you how you can have personal relationship with your Creator. You can't get that by looking at God's created order. You can't know just by having this kind of sense, yeah, God must exist because of all this beautiful creation, that does not reconcile you to God. That does not save you. That does not redeem you. Creation does not proclaim the gospel. Only the scriptures do. You've got to look to the Bible. You've got to look to what the scriptures say. And the scripture says that God has had mercy on sinners. He sent his son into the world to die for sins and to be resurrected from the dead. And that any who would trust in him, believe in him, take what he's done by faith, will be saved. And you can know your creator. The fact that you're made in God's image, the fact that instinctively I say you all know that God exists, that does not make you a Christian. To be a Christian is to turn from your self-reliance and shift your trust and confidence in what Jesus has done. And then, friends, you know God, not just as creator, but you know him as father, you know him as savior, you know him as friend. And that's what we're going to talk about more as we go through the rest of this sermon series in the coming weeks, God willing. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you and thank you as the one true God, the maker of all things. Thank you for not choosing to remain aloof from us, but for coming after us, entering this place, taking on flesh, walking on this earth to fix what is broken and to redeem us for your sake. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.